Uh, it is so good to see you, though. Uh, we are in First Peter chapter 2. Uh, as we've been going through the epistles, as I uh, mentioned just a little bit ago, uh, we've been looking at the epistles as we've also been looking at Peter's life through the uh, book of Acts, also looking at Peter in the instances that we find him uh, in the Gospels. And noting, I think, I hope you've been noting, noticing this, how all of Peter's experiences uh, in the Gospels lead to his ministry ministry and acts and lead to so much of what fills his letters in first and second Peter. Um, and I just love how there's so much symmetry as we can see Peter seeing before his eyes. He's seeing Jesus do these incredible miracles. Jesus say these incredible sermons and you can see Peter's life transformed. And that transformation, as we've noted here in the first chapter, leads into how bold and how passionate he gets about the transformation that believers has. As he says in verse 3, that we are begotten again, literally born again by this lively hope according to the abundant mercy of Christ. Um, I just love Peter's story. We've mentioned this a couple times, but we've noted how we know a lot about Peter. He's, I think, if you just take a step back from Scripture and just look at it from like a macro level from up above, you can see that he is present for almost all of the really, quote, important events, the really significant scenes that pop up throughout the Gospels. Peter's there. He's in the sort of inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He is with Jesus near the end of Jesus' ministry. And he is also one of the foremost voices uh, of the early church during the age of the apostles. We also have that incredible gospel, the gospel of Mark, which I think is also can be called Peter's gospel because it's, we're, we're given all of these scenes through Peter's eyes as John Mark is recording them there. But I love the arc of Peter's life, as we have noted. Uh, it's one that I can resonate with because it's, Peter's life has all of the, the blunders and the blemishes of it. They're just kind of out there in the open. They're, they're front and center. They're not hidden. They're not trying, he's not trying to make himself appear better than he is. He is very open about things that he messed up on. And that's, I think, what I appreciate most about him. Peter, for me, is the most absolute proof that God can work through flawed people. He can work wonders. He can work miracles. He can change, as that wonderful verse in Acts chapter 16, he can turn the world upside down through flawed people. That's what God does. Which is to say this, is that your present, present measure of success or failure in your spiritual life, it has no bearing on whether God can use you. Now, you may feel like right now that you're in a place where God has no ability to use me. I have been through an incredible uh, tumultuous season in my walk with God, my faith, and it's not where it should be. It's not as strong as it used to be. And we can get into sort of this rut where we feel like God cannot use me at all. Let me tell you, Peter's proof positive that God works through flawed people and he works wonders through flawed people. And I was thinking about that and I was, I was thinking about Peter's life and I was reminded of this article uh, by this uh, writer and he's a speaker. His name is John Acuff. Have you ever heard of John Acuff? No. Uh, he's sort of like a Christian sort of like comedian, influencer, speaker type of guy. It's hard to like pin him down. But anyways, he wrote this article many years ago 
uh, that just, if for whatever reason, it popped back up into my brain. It's called The Truth About Callings. And it's a very short article. In fact, it's only just one little paragraph. He just put it up on his blog, uh, I think probably in like 2009. And he says this, which I just love how he thinks through all of this. He says, most days, I don't feel successful enough to be used by God. I don't feel capable. I don't feel smart. I don't feel prepared. Surely there is a better Christian out there who can do what God has called me to do. But then I read the Bible and noticed an interesting pattern when it comes to calling. God found Gideon in a hole. He found Joseph in a prison. He found Daniel in a lion's den. He has a curious habit, God does, of showing up in the midst of trouble, not the absence. Where the world sees failure, God sees future. Next time you feel unqualified to be used by God, remember this. He tends to recruit from the pit, not the pedestal. (laughs) And I find that so endearing because that's Peter. Peter surely was the one that was always speaking before he probably should have. He was always feeling a, probably a little bit more smarter than he really was. A little bit more capable than he really was. He was so self-assured. And he gets in that pit of denial. He's denied Jesus three times. He's in that utter pit of depression. I always go back to that wonderful verse in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, where the angel calls out the disciples, make sure to bring all the disciples to Galilee and Peter. Make sure he is there. Because Jesus was going to use him. He calls people from the pit, not the pedestal, not the most capable. And I'm so glad for that because I see in Peter oftentimes myself, which is say, Most times, I don't know about you, I don't feel successful enough or faithful enough to be used by God. I certainly don't feel smart enough or prepared enough or capable enough. Surely there is someone better to do what I'm doing. (laughs) And then I remember, God has called me to this. And wherever you are, God has called you to where you are. He's put you there for a reason. Peter, I think, proves this. It's God's prerogative to go after the unlikeliest of people to be his messengers. And this is what he does with Peter, one who denied him three times, who said he didn't even know him. And here he is before the the, the high Sanhedrin court in Acts chapter 4. And he's proclaiming to them the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says to them boldly, the one that you denied... (laughs) That's Peter. God called Peter from that pit of denial to be an apostle of his good news. And therefore we can see very clearly. Peter knew what it meant firsthand by his own experience to be born again to this lively hope. As we've noticed from chapter 1. I think the same is true for all of us. If we are here tonight and we believe in Jesus Christ, we've been born again by this lively hope. This hope that has breath in its lungs and blood in its veins. It's Jesus. I say all that because we have to keep in mind Peter's experience as he's writing these words to these churches. 
Because to me, that's the most profound effect that these words will have, is that Peter's not just writing doctrine. He's not just writing theory. He's not just writing sort of Christianity in general. He's writing specifically for these people out of his own experience. I have witnessed this. I have experienced this. This is not faith that might be. This is faith that's real because it's faith that is coming out of my experience. I think we can resonate with that. It's not just like some imaginary Christianity that we like to pretend is true. This is true faith on the ground. So he emphasizes here in this next passage, as we're going to go through the first 10 verses of chapter 2, the precise place that these churches held in the kingdom of God, which I think is important to remember, especially for us But especially for these here in this letter. Imagine you are one of these believers receiving this letter. The messenger comes. They hand you this uh, envelope. If they had envelopes back then, maybe, I guess. They hand you this envelope. (laughs) They say, here's a new letter from the Apostle Peter. You get to church that day and you get to read it. And he reads these words. Verse 9. You are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We have to let those words have their first century Gentile emphasis. Imagine you're in this church, you're a first sort of generation Christian, so to speak. You've heard about this way of Jesus. If you read, if you read Acts, by the way, they barely mention the name Christian, they often mention the way. The way of Jesus, that's what it was called. This this way, so to speak, is still really new to you. But this persecution now is coming upon you because you've decided and you've put your faith in this way. And because of your affiliation with those who also follow this way. And also, too, you have to remember, you've been told, if you're a part of this church in this particular moment, you've been told your entire life that you don't matter as much because of your nationality. Your Gentileness makes you less important. You don't have the same sort of privileges, the same sort of offerings, the same sort of ability to be part of the faith and religion and spirituality. And yet now here Peter is declaring to you that not only is the God of the Jews also your God, but he has pre-arranged, as we looked at before, in eternity past to die for you on behalf of your soul, in behalf of your sin, to rescue you from your life of wickedness, to make you holy. Imagine what that would do to you. (laughs) I think it would be a lot to swallow, if I can use that image. (laughs) Peter is here just gushing out. As we, we've said this before, that Peter packs so much theology, so much rich doctrine into a small amount of space. And he's also packing a lot of truth about who these people are into a small amount of space. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. They were never told that. They were never told that that's who they were before. And now, listen to what Peter is saying. This is who you are. This is what I love about Peter. He is stressing to these Gentile believers... 
that they, yes, they, because they are united to Jesus Christ by faith, they are united to God's covenant people and purposes. They have an intimate place in the kingdom of heaven. And he does this sort of stressing of this, this emphasis of this, I think in three really uh, quick ways. I want to look at three quick ways that Peter emphasizes their place in the kingdom of God. First, notice, uh, first I want to notice this, that they, had, they were united in identity. United in identity. Look at verse 1. Again, Peter, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. He reminds them again, he is not hasty to move on from what they have been redeemed from. And so he reminds them of their former and that he's going to launch into their present identity. He's contrasting, he's holding in the balance, in juxtaposition, their old identity and their new identity. Who they were before and who they are now. And he brings this to mind by that word that we've noticed before, wherefore. On account of, remember we looked at last week, on account of the holiness that God has gifted. It wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago. Um, anyways, but last time we were on Peter. Wherefore, on account of the holiness of God, that God has given to you in the gospel, that God has prearranged from eternity past to give to you, on account of that, that's where we launch into this, this conversation. And he summons them. As newborn babes, as he says, to put off their old identities, to put off, lay aside all that identified them before and to crave, desire the sincere milk of the word. This is their new identity. And I think we can see here the sort of the full, the fuller, the fullest expression of what Peter was talking about when he mentioned the new birth back in chapter one, verse three. Again, I keep going back to that verse because I think it's so pivotal to Peter's point. That they were begotten again, born again by the mercies of God. And what does it look like to be born again? (laughs) Well, he says here that because of that new birth, you have now an old identity. Verse 1, this is who you were before. You were malicious, you had, were full of hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, you were full of wickedness, it was in your bones, it was who you were, it was a part of your whole life. But now, now that you are begotten again, you have been made into something new, something entirely new. You are, to repeat the words of the Apostle Paul, you are a new creature he says there, that's who you are, a newborn babe. (laughs) And so what is this new identity that they've been born into? Look at verse 4. He says, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What a wonderful, full sort of expression, an explosion of what they are now because of Jesus Christ. They've been given title and authority and rank and duty and family. Those who were not a people, those who were outcasts, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, those who were foreigners, they've been brought in, they've been brought close, they've been brought into the family of God by the everlasting mercy and compassion of Christ. This is who you are, he is saying. You can see him. You can see Peter's passion for who these churches were. Remember your identity. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone shake your confidence in who you are. Because you've been born again by the mercy of God to this reality. You who were formerly outcasts and foreigners, you are now, as he says there, the people of God. This is Peter's heartbeat, I think. And I think here he summarizes, at least for me in my mind, he summarizes what it means to be a Christian. There's an old life that used to define us. But we, as he says there in verse 3, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You have been born again through the spirit of our living hope to a new life. So we have here this juxtaposition. An old life that defined us and a new life that's been given to us. And notice as he says there in verse 2, back again there, you as newborn babes, as people who've been born again, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. He's basically calling them spiritual infants. (laughs) You've been born again by this beloved mercy of Christ, but you are weak. You're susceptible to infection. And you are desperate for nourishment. Desire the sincere milk of the word. This is the gospel that he's talking about. If you go back to the last verse of of chapter 1 where he talks about. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. He's talking about the same thing. This is the gospel. It's the gospel alone that offers us the ability to grow. Just as a mother's milk is the best source for growth for a newborn, so too is the gospel the only true agent of spiritual growth and fortification and nourishment. He's saying that here. Crave it. Desire it. You have this identity. You have this as your new true reality. And he's saying here, do you have that desire to drink in the pure truth of the gospel that reminds you of who you are on account of that church? You can lay aside your old life because the gospel reminds you of who you are, of something better. This is the new life that they've been given. And notice, I think there's a very key phrase At the end of verse 5. That I think unites it to what he's going to talk about in the next section. Because he's talking about their identity. 
as they have become into this new reality, as they have this new sort of duty and calling, they have this new family. And he says, by Jesus Christ. He ties it all. He ties it all to this one man, Jesus Christ, their living hope. He is the one through whom all of this new identity rests on and relies on and is all occupied in. It's Jesus Christ. They are united in identity. But number two, I want to look next, that they are also united in foundation. Notice verses four through eight. He talks here about Jesus Christ. And I think there's so much that what there's so much that Peter does in these verses. I just I love Peter. If you haven't already gathered that, I love Peter. And there's so much that he wants to do. And there's so much I feel like that he, he's sort of one of those writers that has so much to say. That he's like just, if he had a keyboard, he would just be furiously typing on his keyboard. And it, it, his editor would have to like scratch a whole ton of stuff. <laughs> because he's just writing furiously. And it's just pouring out of him. Here in these verses, <laughs> he is quoting so much scripture. To prove who this Jesus is. That is their foundation. This guy that he says by Jesus Christ. Has given you this new identity. As priests. As, uh, as living stones. Here he is. Emphasizing the identity of. Their foundation. To prove that they are united by it. That their hope was alive. Notice verse 4. He says, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Here, G, uh, here Peter condenses Jesus' identity to just a few concise bullets. <laughs> but inside these little phrases are entire sermons. He says here that he came, came as a living stone. Did you notice that? This is an, a sort of a, a hearkening back to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And there's this beautiful imagery that this Christ came as a living stone. If you notice verse 5, there's this beautiful poetry to turn us into lively stones. <laughs> he takes dead rocks and turns them into lively stones as the one who is the living stone. <laughs> it reminds me too that Jesus came to be like men. He came as a living stone. And the Lord was promptly, as he says there, disallowed indeed of men. He was rejected by those that he came to save. We read those verses in Mark and the other gospels where it talks about he was rejected by his own uh, family, rejected by his own hometown. He was rejected by those who were primed to receive him. He was rejected by men. And yet, nevertheless, at the last phrase, he is chosen of God and precious. He was God's chosen, picked out, treasured redeemer of all mankind. And so in this one verse, we have this incredibly expansive view of who this Jesus is. And he reminds them of how this Jesus serves as their foundation. Notice verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and that he believeth on him shall not, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. 
Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Here again, this is where Peter, (laughs) he's using all of different points of scripture to prove what he's talking about. To remind them of who this Jesus was. That he's not just a man. That he's not just some figure that they're putting their hopes in. He is the promised chosen one of God who was ordained beforehand to save the world from its sins. He's reminding of that. He is the chief cornerstone of their faith. They are united in foundation. Here in this, one, in this one passage, 6 through 8, Peter is making reference to Isaiah 28, verse 16. He's making reference to Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And he's making reference to Mark chapter 12. Actually, go to Mark chapter 12. Because that's the one that I think is most uh, curious to me. Because it's one that Peter was present for. Jesus himself quotes these Same sort of phrases in pictures. If you look at the first 10 verses. Or first 12 verses, sorry. This is that really fascinating story. Where Jesus tells this parable about the vineyard owners. Well, let me just read it. Verse 1. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it. And digged a place for the wine fat. And built a tower and led it out to a husbandman. And went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husband and a servant. That he might receive for the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him. That is the husbandman. Excuse me. Or excuse me. The servant. And beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent to them another servant. And at him they cast stones. And wounded him in the head. And sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another. And him they killed. And many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son. His well beloved. He sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. And what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. (laughs) What a wonderful passage. Here Jesus is, by the way, speaking to Pharisees, speaking to the Sanhedrin, which, by the way, is the same body of men that Peter was also addressing in Acts chapter 4. And he's telling them, remember in Acts chapter 4, he reminds them of here of what Jesus specifically said, that they were rejecting the stone. He's quoting the same thing, quoting the same important truth that the very stone that they are rejecting is the very stone that becomes the foundation of the entire Christian faith. Here, Jesus is making reference to many servants who have been sent unto the people, prophets, teachers, all throughout the Old Testament who were rejected, who were killed for their belief in this God named Yahweh. And eventually, God sends his only begotten son, his only son who is well beloved. Surely they will listen to him. And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They rejected this stone. 
Peter saw this. He saw firsthand what this eventually came to mean as he saw those who claimed to believe in the scriptures rejecting the very Messiah that they were looking for as they were crucifying Jesus on that cross. He saw firsthand what it meant for this living stone to eventually become the chief cornerstone, rejected by men, but chosen by God. I thought, or I was thinking about, again, just to succinctly, how do you just succinctly say why they rejected this Jesus? Well, number one, they were prideful. They were assuming that they were experts on the law, assuming that they had all this knowledge, but also, too, they could not make sense of Jesus' message. Because what had he had just declared? If you remember, it was a long time ago, I know, when I preached through Mark. He had just declared in Mark chapter 8, what was the first thing? It was his first sort of open declaration that he had to die. And they just couldn't do with a king who had to die. They just couldn't make sense of this concept that a king that was promised, as they were told, in Daniel, Isaiah, all the prophets, they're hearkening unto this Messiah who is going to come to them and bring Israel back from the ashes to rise into the kingdom of power and that this Messiah would be that one. And here Jesus is claiming that he is and now he's claiming that he has to die. There has to be something wrong there. The cross is too shameful. Because you see, it's not that just that he died. He died on a cross. He died like a criminal, like a rotten, dirty scoundrel. The shame and the indignity of what Jesus did was something that they just couldn't wrap their heads around. Such is why Peter says back in 1 Peter 2 verse 8 that this stone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It reminds me several weeks ago of when Pastor Nathan preached on 1 Corinthians. That the Jews and the Greeks, as uh, Paul is talking to them, that they just couldn't get over what this cross was. It was too foolish. It was too shameful. It was too offensive. So they stumbled at it. And they rejected it. And they were disobedient to it. Because they just could not see what the cross truly was. It was their salvation. It was their redemption. It was Jesus, God, buying back lost sinners to begin them again to this holiness, to this life of faith. Such is why Peter says that it is by faith that we are born again to see the triumph of the cross. Notice he says in verse 7, unto you... You who believe, you who have, verse 3, tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious unto you which believe he is precious. Unto you, what Jesus has done, it is your treasure, it is your triumph, it is precious to you. And this is why Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Because he bears the weight of all of their identities. And he bears the weight of all of their faith. He, as he says here, is the chief cornerstone. The stone that bears all the pressure of the entire edifice. 
He's the stone that is exalted above all the other ones because he is the corner. And he's the one building his church. He's the living stone who comes to turn dead stones into lively stones. (laughs) The one who comes and restores and refurbishes dilapidated sinners into spiritual houses for his father's glory. That's this Jesus. That's what he has done. And that's what he's continuing to do. And he is our foundation upon which everyone stands. And he's reminding them here, Peter is, that you church are united on this foundation. You stand on him. In him we are one. In him we grow together as the church. But lastly, I want to look at verse 9. Because we're united in identity and united in foundation. But lastly, we are united in purpose. Because as he's talking about this identity, he's talking about what they are standing on. And who has given them that identity. What is the purpose of it? Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus orchestrate? Why did God orchestrate from eternity past all of these events to happen in this way? Why did he prearrange this enormous truth and truth of transformation? That we are begotten again into lively stones. Why? You are a chosen generation, verse 9, of royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's the reason. There's the purpose. Church, as he is saying, you have been given this purpose to show forth by your lives, by your desire of the sincere milk of the word, by your desire to grow thereby, by your desire to show forth the holiness that you have been given by your foundation, that is your purpose. To show that to the praise of this one who has reached into the darkness and pulled you out of it by his glorious grace and now has made you light unto the world. This is the task of every believer. He's reminding them, hey, all of you churches in Asia Minor, or now it's modern day Turkey as he's there writing to them. This is your purpose. Regardless of where you are or when you are and how old you are, this is your purpose. It can look different in anyone's context, whether we are in first grade or whether we in high school or whether we are in our careers. If we believe in Jesus Christ and the blood that saves us from our sins, our mission and purpose in life is to show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Wherever we are, whenever we are, we have the same calling. And we hold, I love, I love this, we hold the same spiritual office. We are all priests. We have been made the priesthood of God. This is one of the the core tenets of what it means to be, quote, a Baptist. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. Which, by the way, is something that is ushered out of the Reformation into our day. I I love to read Martin Luther. On this particular passage. Especially Peter. Because Martin Luther takes... Every opportunity he can in his commentary on Peter to uh, give some digging remarks to uh, the papacy, (laughs) to the Pope, which I love. It's just great. 
But if you read it, I love what he says here. Because he's emphasizing the fact. Hey, there is no hierarchy of powers. In his day, the popes were made to be venerated way above what it meant to be a common churchgoer. And there's a passage, I I should have put it in my notes, because he talks about what does it mean to be a priest. And he talks about how it doesn't mean to wear the long robes and to get all fancy and to have so much eloquence about you. He talks about what it means to be a priest is faith, if we could boil it down to that. And he has this wonderful passage where he talks about this purpose that we have to show forth the praises of this one who has called us out of darkness. And Martin Luther says this. Your whole duty is discharged in this, that you confess what God has done for you. And then let it be your chief aim to make this known publicly and to call everyone to the light to which you have been called. There's your duty. There's the task that you have been assigned by your heavenly father, by this one who has called you out of darkness, is to confess that you have been in darkness and that God in his son, Jesus Christ, has ripped you out of it and has put you into the light. This is your purpose, your responsibility, your privilege as the priesthood of God to show forth this wonderful, wonderful fact of the gospel. Is that it saves those. It saves us in the pit of sin. Not on the pedestal of self-righteousness. It saves us in the deepest pit of sin and darkness and depravity and wickedness. And God in Jesus Christ pulls us up out of that pit into his light of glory and grace. To serve him and to showcase to others just what this gospel can do. And this is what I love. Because as priests, our mission is quite simple. To tell others what Jesus has done for us. Remember that song in Sunday school? Be a missionary every day. I used to chuckle at that song. Because I used to think that when it said be a missionary, that meant... Everyone needs to be a missionary and go to Africa and preach the gospel. But then it wasn't until I was older, because that's what I understood. I was a pastor's kid. I'd seen missionaries all the time. And they're always talking about how they're in some exotic location doing the work of the ministry. So that, to me, was the correlation. Missionary is that. And it is. It's going to places where the gospel has not been seen or heard or known. But it's also being a missionary... To your classmates, a missionary to your coworkers, a missionary to your neighbors, a missionary to your family. That's what it means to be a priest. And actually, I love Martin Luther again. He wants to make it to where we call each other priests. In his commentary on this particular chapter, he said, We should not be ashamed of that title. When we think of priests, we think of people with fancy hats and funny-looking robes. <laughs> and he's saying that's not the point. We should change that song. Be a priest every day. Because <laughs> what does a priest do? He shows forth the praises of the one who has called him out of darkness to show forth this marvelous light. That's what it means to be a priest. That's what it means to be a missionary. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
We are united in identity and foundation and purpose. And it's all because of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Let us pray.